Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Mike DeBliss, as Michael said. I am in private practice right now. I did a 10-year tour in the Public Defender's Office, uh, so thus the presentation on Evidence 101. Um, I really, really would, I mean, any feedback that I get from you guys um, at any time, if you want to raise your hand and ask me any questions, feel free to. Uh, there is a lot of content here, and I'm sure you probably have started going through some of it in your slide deck. There is no way, humanly possible, I can get through all of it. Um, you can tell that there are a lot of hypotheticals. Um, for me, and I don't know about um, all of you, but for me to really get a solid understanding of evidence, um, I need hypotheticals. And I'm one of those people that really learned evidence by being in the trenches and being in trial uh, where, you know, I, where things came up last minute and where I had to kind of think fast on my feet. A lot of these hypotheticals, as uh, crazy as they might seem, do come from real life situations as a uh, real life public defender. Um, so I certainly, as I said, welcome any of your feedback. And um, feel free if you have any questions just to raise your hand. Um, I just want to gauge uh, the, the pulse of the room here just so I have an idea of where, um, where different uh, attorneys work. How many of you uh, work in uh, in a practice where you do civil litigation, and oh, okay, so that's the vast majority of the room. Um, criminal. Okay, interesting, interesting, very interesting. So the the beauty of this presentation is that I'm going to kind of mix civil with criminal, but you'll see that there's a fair balance. So I'm not, you know, going to I'm not going to skip over or slide through civil, um, even though my, you know, my forte is in the criminal arena. In fact, some of you that practice civil uh, will keep me honest, I'm sure, if I make a mistake. Um, so <laughs> um, at any time, if you hear my voice going down and you're having trouble hearing, just raise your hand and I'll, I'll be sure to project. So um, this presentation, as I said, is on evidence. Just uh, a little bit about me. Uh, <laughs> ironically, these days, uh, not only am I in the courtroom as a uh, real-life lawyer, but um, I've been playing one on television, uh, which is quite interesting, <laughs> um, especially when you get a script that makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. Uh, so my, my passion when I came out of law school was theater. Um, out, of all things, people ask me how I got into it. I can only tell you that it probably stemmed from my, um, my passion for storytelling, and storytelling kind of evolved into other creative uh, areas that I never got to explore when I was younger. So um, the inner artist in me began to really uh, crave uh, the stage. And um, I, I actually wound up going to conservatory and spent two years at the Neighborhood Playhouse, uh, where I got uh, some incredible instruction and where I was basically given my wings to fly, not only on a TV set or on a uh, stage, but also in the courtroom. And I can't tell you how much I've drawn from my experience as, a, um, as, a, uh, as someone who's been trained in theater and how I brought that into the courtroom to try to bring the human element to uh, the jury. It's not always easy, but it can be done. And um, I certainly encourage any of you, if you get the opportunity to take a storytelling class that um, focuses specifically on the courtroom, um, you'll get uh, instruction in opening statement, storytelling through opening, You'll get instruction on how to weave your theme through your direct examination, even through your cross-examination of hostile witnesses, 
and uh, all the way up into uh, closing argument. So um, there's just this there's just this area that I think is um, just uh, you know waiting to explode of um, you know bringing yourself and bringing your um, you know your uh, your authenticity into the courtroom in a way to humanize your client. And I can't uh, tell you how um, you know how much of a game changer it is. It it really is. So um, three major areas of evidence. Um, these are relevance, witnesses, testimonial evidence, including form of examination, opinions and experts, credibility and impeachment, and hearsay. These are basically the three major areas that I've divided evidence into. This is by no means um, the, um, you know, the, the, the way your law professors may have even presented it to you, but this is the way that I process evidence. And so when I'm in the courtroom and um, you know, I've, I, I'm representing a client in a trial, uh, one of the first things that I always ask myself, well, actually backing up, one of the very first things that I always trust in the courtroom is my gut, my gut instinct. As a defense attorney, if I feel like I'm getting railroaded or my client, for that matter, is getting railroaded or I've been ambushed or something just doesn't sound or seem right, I always go to the definition of relevance. And as um, vague and as ambiguous as that uh, definition is, that can be my first objection. So if I can't put my finger on what is wrong with what the prosecutor's trying to introduce, um, I might just raise that objection immediately and then kind of sound my way through it as I'm voicing my objection. So you can never go wrong by starting with relevance. Witnesses, uh, we just talked about the testimonial evidence, including the form, opinions, and, ex and experts, credibility, and impeachment, and then hearsay. Um, digressions, writings, and privileges. Um, as I said, I'm going to do my best to get to all of these. However, um, we may not be able to cover them in the detail that's necessary. So everybody knows the classic textbook definition of relevant evidence. It's evidence that has a tendency to make the existence of any fact that is of consequence to the determination of the action more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. So I can remember being in law school the very first day and just looking at my law, my evidence professor, actually this would have been second term, like he had three heads wondering what the hell does that mean? And um, the great news is that he kind of assuaged our concerns and said that to understand evidence, what you really need, or relevancy rather, is to actually break it up into two parts and then understand that there is a body of case law that, ha that has uh, evolved around relevancy um, that will help you help drive home the definition in a way that'll be palpable in your mind and that you'll be able to um, you know isolate the issues right away. So he began by teaching us about the relevancy strand. That strand talks about the tendency to make the existence of any fact more or less probable than it would be without the fact. And then the materiality strand, that the fact must be of consequence to the determination of the action. And so uh, we start with the distinction between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. Uh, we're talking here about logical relevancy, and logical relevancy problems involve only circumstantial evidence, not direct evidence. Um, so the classic example that you've probably heard from law school or that you've seen in jury instructions, um, distinguishing direct evidence from circumstantial evidence, is on the one hand, you have direct evidence where the witness actually observes something. So as a criminal defense attorney, um, I'm going to use the 
this example, where the testimony of an eyewitness to a shooting that she saw the accused shoot the victim. It doesn't get any, um, it doesn't get any more direct, and I should say worse than that. Uh, no inference is required. The eyewitness saw the accused shoot the victim. You can play around maybe with issues involving whether the witness was nearsighted, farsighted. Um, if so, whether the witness was wearing glasses or contacts at the time. Um, those are you know, fair game when it comes to cross-examining the witness, but that's direct evidence. Circumstantial evidence, evidence whose relevancy depends on the drawing of an inference. So if we use the example that I just gave, this is now the testimony of an eyewitness that she didn't see the actual shooting, but she did see the accused running from the scene of the crime. In the jury instructions in New Jersey, um, the classic example or definition that's used uh, for circumstantial evidence is uh, you go to bed, it's whatever, 11 o'clock, midnight, and it's ex you're, the weather um, forecast uh, predicts it's going to snow. You wake up the next morning at 6 a.m. and there's six inches of snow on the ground. Well, you were asleep during the time it snowed. What is the inference you can make? It snowed during that time. As a defense attorney, I hate hearing that because it makes it, makes it almost appear as though the burden is somehow, um, is somehow less because everybody can relate to a quick and dirty example like that. For relevancy, we have two types. We have logical relevance and discretionary, pragmatic, or policy-based relevance. Logical relevance is evidence that has any tendency to make the material fact more probable or less probable than it would be without the evidence. This is an easy standard. Uh, the warning signals, um, evidence may not be logically relevant um, if evidence involves some other time, event, per or person um, other than the one involved in litigation. We'll see, however, that there are some exceptions to that as we go through some hypotheticals. Discretionary or policy-based relevance is a stricter standard of admissibility. Even relevant evidence may be excluded if its probative value is substantially, substantially outweighed by the danger of, and then you see the laundry list of, um, uh, of factors that um, can, uh, can show this imbalance. So even if it's determined that the evidence is relevant, um, again, if one of these other issues rears its ugly head, then the, that relevant evidence is inadmissible. So it's very important to you know, understand these and realize that these are your toolbox. Uh, you can pull these out of your toolbox as a defense attorney if um, the evidence is, you know, shocks the conscience or, you know, meets any one of these uh, factors in this laundry list. Now, one thing about uh, 403 is that it makes no mention of unfair surprise. Uh, so that would be the least likely ground to exclude logically relevant evidence on the grounds of unfair surprise. Uh, we're going to go through some recurring relevance patterns, um, and it will. Um, I'm going to break them down according to the way I've uh, broken down uh, this relevancy topic, according to logical relevance and then discretionary policy-based relevance. Similar occurrences. This is where evidence is admissible, even though it does involve some other time, some other event, or some other person not directly involved in litigation. So you might remember before that I just uh, laid out um, the warning signals that evidence may not be logically relevant if it involves some other time event person uh, than involved in litigation. However, uh, we are now seeing where 
um, evidence can still be admissible even though it does involve some other time event or some other person. And here are um, the exceptions. Causation, to prove cause and effect. Uh, here we have a plaintiff who is with his friends. He's eating a hamburger at um, McDonald's and he gets sick. He suspects that it was the hamburger that caused him, uh, that he ate at McDonald's, that made him nauseous. How can he prove that the hamburger meat served there was, bare, was bad? He can offer evidence that his friends that were there with him who ate the same uh, type of food, namely the hamburger, at the same time and at the same restaurant also got sick, if that was in the fact pattern. Prior accidents or claims. Uh, these are similar accidents. And this gets, this is really, um, to understand this um, purely in theory is just, it's too abstract. And that's why I'm throwing in these hypotheticals and I'm trying to keep them very um, simple and very direct. Um, as we get along, we're going to be building on these concepts, so um, don't worry if you're looking for something a little bit more challenging because we're going to get there. Similar accidents. Evidence of other prior accidents may be admissible by a plaintiff, first to prove that a dangerous situation existed, or second to prove that the defendant was aware of a dangerous condition if the plaintiff establishes a substantial identity of material circumstances. And as you can see, I've uh, underlined substantial identity of material circumstances because that is significant, that phrase. The issue in these cases with prior accidents or claims is whether there was a substantial identity of material circumstances. So here's a classic example. We have a plaintiff who um, is offering evidence of three other accidents at a particular railroad crossing. So let me just back up for a second. Plaintiff is involved in an accident at a railroad crossing. And the plaintiff now is introducing evidence of three other accidents at that railroad crossing to show the dangerous nature of the crossing and that the city was on notice of how uh, dangerous the crossing was. Is it admissible? Well, we would need some additional facts here. That depends on whether or not there is a substantial identity of material circumstances. Now, could, can you think of what, uh, what a substantial identity of material circumstances would call for in a hypothetical like this one? I mean, you, you don't have to think too hard because it's just literally think of the time of year that the accident occurred in. If it occurred, say, January 15th, when there was five inches of snow on the ground, uh, you better believe that those um, other accidents must have occurred at a similar time or of year. Um, so the plaintiff would have to show similar time of day, similar speed, similar weather condition in order to introduce the evidence of these other accidents. Now, uh, a lot of people will say what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So can the absence of similar accidents be admissible? Um, in this situation where uh, we're now going to be basically analyzing it from the defense's perspective, where the defense is the proponent of the evidence. So the situation in this case is one where the defendant, not the plaintiff, is offering evidence of absence of similar accidents to establish due care. What's required for absence of similar accidents to be admissible? Two, uh, two things, substantial identity of material circumstance, what a surprise, that came from the last hypothetical, and second, the defendant must show that, it, that if an accident had occurred, it would have been observed. 
So here we have a plaintiff who's the, suing the city after an accident at an intersection. The defendant offers to prove that over the last 14 years, the intersection has remained the same and there have been no reported accidents. Is it admissible? Yes. First, um, and this is the way you would reason your way through it, the intersection has remained the same for the last 14 years. That proves substantial identity of material circumstance. Second, no accidents have been reported. Um, okay, this is the hotel lobby example. Plaintiff slips and falls on a freshly waxed tile floor, floor in a hotel lobby. The defendant offers evidence that over the last week, 1,500 persons have used the floor and traipsed over it, but no one got hurt. Is that evidence uh, that is being introduced by defendant admissible to establish due care on the hotel's part? And the answer to that would be a no, um, and that would be the objection that you'd raise because of one key fact. If you remember from the beginning, we talked about how the plaintiff fell on a freshly waxed floor. If you think about it logically, at the point in which all of those 1,500 persons, other persons who traipsed through the lobby walked in, it's hard to imagine that they would, that the floor would have been freshly waxed at all of those moments. So the objection here would be, it obviously couldn't have been freshly waxed at the point when each and every one of those other uh, 1,500 people walked across it. And uh, you'd conclude by saying there's no substantial identity of material fact and the evidence would be inadmissible. Um, general rule, plaintiff's prior accidents or, or claims are not admissible. There are some exceptions here. Um, in this hypothetical, we have a plaintiff who drives into a bridge abutment and sues the city that built and maintained the bridge. The city, which is the um, which is defendant, seeks to show that plaintiff has on four other occasions driven into stationary objects and sued. Is it admissible if Right away, it doesn't pass the smell check because you're thinking about character evidence. Um, you're right on the money. Uh, that proves that uh, plaintiff is accident prone, but that kind of character evidence is not admissible to prove conduct and conformity therewith. Now we have an, an exception um, to show common plan or scheme of fraud. If the city can show that the prior claims were fraudulent, then evidence is, is admissible. Well, how likely is that to happen? Um, it might. I mean, in today's age, anything is possible. Uh, the second exception is when the prior accidents are relevant on the issue of damages to the plaintiff. Um, so this is where there is a very fine distinction. If the plaintiff is claiming an injury to the same part of his body as a result of colliding into that bridge abutment um, that he previously injured, then that would be admissible. Intent or state of mind an issue, um, and this is basically um, determining, um, this is to infer intent from prior conduct. Um, so, you know, the theory, the idea here is that, you know, you can't open up a person's mind to see or, to see or look at what they were thinking at the time of the event. So their conduct or their behavior um, is the closest thing that you can get to their state of mind. So in this hypothetical, we have a plaintiff who sues claiming a pattern of gender discrimination in hiring. The defendant employer denies uh, any intent to discriminate and claims that the absence of women employees is because no women applicants were qualified. Um, however, the plaintiff isn't going to rest there. 
Um, she offers to show that other quali quali well-qualified women were denied employment. Is that admissible? It is admissible. And that's admissible to show how defendant treated other qualified women who, uh, who applied. Um, and again, the defendant put that into play by denying an intent to discriminate right from the get-go. Um, and here we have rebuttal evidence, so this is a perfect segue um, to rebut the defense of impossibility. Uh, this is a great example. Uh, this is the example where a plaintiff ingests a mouse while drinking Coke and sues the bottler. Okay, now be careful here. Um, it, uh, you know, we, it says the bottler. It doesn't say Coca-Cola. Um, so the defendant defends on the ground that it's impossible for a mouse to get into Coke. Now the plaintiff, um, as rebuttal evidence, offers evidence of another recent incident in which a mouse was found in the Coke. Is it admissible? Yes. And um, it, the first time might have been a coincidence, but not a different mouse on a different, <laughs> on a different day. Uh, so as you can see, the issue was put into play by the defense. Uh, by virtue of the fact that the defendant is denying um, that uh, mouse could have gotten into the Coke, they put it into play, and now plaintiff is just salivating um, because a good plaintiff's attorney is going to know that there was more than one incident and is going to say, oh yeah, defense uh, bottler, um, I've got a second incident, and now uh, if one wasn't good enough for you, how about two? Um, this is uh, comparable sales to establish value. Uh, the sale price of other uh, chattels or parcels of real property um, admissible if they are the same type. Uh, those other sales took place at about the same time. Those other sales took place in the same general geographic area. I always, when I think about um, you know, uh, these uh, property, real property as well as uh, personal property, you, know, you always think of paintings. Um, so the question that often comes to mind is what about the sale of unique property like a Picasso painting. Um, expert testimony there would be required to show similarity of uh, value. Habit evidence. Uh, so as you can see, as we're progressing uh, through this uh, topic of relevancy, uh, we're on uh, logical relevancy. Uh, habit evidence. Um, this is that uh, same definition that's been drilled into our minds uh, since day uh, one of evidence class. The habit of a person to act in a certain way is relevant to show that person acted in the same way on the occasion in question. Habit evidence was something that I grossly underestimated when I got out of law school because I don't think I really appreciated the significance of how habit evidence can sometimes um, be your best friend or your worst enemy in litigation. And I'm going to draw from some real life cases that I had to show you the power of habit evidence. Um, and that I don't really think it, it gets emphasized um, strongly enough or strenuously enough in law school. Uh, so the, the textbook definition from the federal rules uh, gives us that evidence of the habit of a person or the routine practice of an organization, whether corroborated or not, and I'm emphasizing those words for a reason that you'll see in a moment, and regardless of the presence of eyewitnesses, is relevant to prove conduct in conformity with the habit or the routine practice. Uh, so we have some overlapping rules when it comes to habit evi evidence. Uh, we have disposition evidence to infer conduct on a certain occasion, not admissible. Prior act evidence to infer conduct on the occasion in question, not admissible. Habit evidence 
admissible. And um, again, that just uh, recaps the definition. Um, now, a lot of times, um, habit evidence comes up when uh, certain words are triggered. Um, so if you are listening very intently and very carefully to a witness, um, you want to always uh, key in on some of these words for character evidence purposes. Always, automatically, invariably, regularly, instinctively, without fail. That's tip-offs, um, not in our world that they're testing because we're done with that, but um, that's a tip-off in a case or a trial that the witness is uh, you know, going to offer testimony on, um, on character evidence. And um, habit evidence should be the first thing that comes to mind to see if it falls under that category. Frequently and often are usually not enough. So here's an example. Uh, we have a passenger who's suing a driver after a car accident. The driver's eyewitness testified that the passenger wasn't wearing her seatbelt. The passenger calls witness as a witness to test, or we can name her whatever, Wanda, as a witness to testify that she drives to work every day with the passenger and has done so for the last three years, and invariably the passenger wears her seatbelt. Is that evidence going to be admissible, habit evidence? Yes. Yes. Notwithstanding the fact that there is, uh, that the driver's eyewitness testified that the passenger was not wearing her seatbelt. So how could that be? Well, if we go back a few slides to the definition of habit evidence, it says here, evidence of the habit of a person or the routine practice of an organization, whether corroborated or not, whoops, and regardless of any witness, um, and regardless of witness testimony, and regardless of the presence of eyewitnesses is relevant to prove conduct in conformity with the habit. So this illustrates the same issue that I uh, brought up before, that it's, it's almost shocking in a sense that in this fact pattern, the witness who comes to court can testify that she drives to work every day with the passenger, has done, has done so for three years, and invariably pass, the passenger wears a seatbelt. Um, I would first, I find it hard to believe, um, you know, based on this um, scenario, and I would go right, I would cut right to the chase with this as to, you know, the witness's credibility in, um, in testifying that she has driven to work with the witness, you know, um, even, even three days out of a work week uh, three, for three years in question. I mean, that might be opening up a can of worms, but um, the fact that this witness is testifying that she's driven to work every day with the passenger and that invariably the passenger wears a seatbelt can be introduced and is admissible as habit evidence, notwithstanding the driver's eyewitness who testified that the passenger wasn't wearing her seatbelt. Those are the, our rules. Um, here we have an intersection accident, and the issue in the uh, hypothetical is whether the defendant stopped at the stop sign. That's oftentimes the issue when you're dealing with um, a stop sign and an intersection and, um, a, uh, and an accident. Defendant offers a witness to testify that defendant um, is a cautious driver. Uh, two, that witness has seen defendant stop at that stop sign on two other occasions 
three that the witness has seen defendant stop at that stop sign on 10 or 20 prior occasions. And the question asks us which of, the, of these is most likely to be admitted. Um, choice three should stick out at you with a neon sign because when it comes to character evidence, uh, we want uh, there to be, th there, there is a premium placed on the number of times uh, the witness has seen or made the observation. So that's what um, kind of rules out option number two. Uh, the fact that the uh, witness saw the defendant stop at the stop sign on two other occasions, well, that's, that's really, you know, that, where is that going to get us? I mean, two occasions, all right, what about the 800,000 other times, you know? So the more times that the witness has had to observe the defendant stop at that stop sign, the more likely um, it's going to be admitted as habit evidence. And as you can see, this is going to turn into um, an issue where you're going to probably want to uh, garner as much case law in your favor to, um, help, uh, to help support this application. Otherwise, it's going to be so arbitrary uh, and capricious where the judge is going to be you know, thinking in his head and, or her head, which they oftentimes do, is two times enough, is 20 times enough, get some case law right on point that demonstrates how much is enough and how little is too little. Uh, so if the defendant has stopped at that stop sign on, on 10 or 20 prior occasions, that's probably enough to make it habit. And what's the consequence of introducing habit ev evidence? This is what, as a young public defender, just really, you know, uh, really made me incredulous. I, I had no idea the power of this evidence. Um, at the time of the accidents, even if there were no eyewitnesses, habit evidence is admissible to show the defendant stopped at that stop sign. Habit evidence can be proved either by opinion testimony or by evidence of specific instances of conduct. Uh, business routine. This often comes up in the context of uh, habit evidence, so I figured we'd deal with it um, right here. The routine practice of an organization is admissible just like habit. Um, the example that comes to mind uh, is kind of an old primitive example from the home shopping network, but it demonstrates um, how the evidence of the routine practice of, a, um, of the home shopping network on how they answer phone, phone orders, how they enclose their merchandise in a box, how they ship it using FedEx or United States um, uh, or, uh, UP, or UPS or whatever, that would all be admissible as a routine business practice of the company. Um, similarly, industrial or trade custom is admissible as non-conclusive evidence of standard of care. Here we're interested in what others in the same business or trade have done in the past as an indication of what these parties should have done. Um, and this gets really interesting because uh, the fact patterns that come up in this area deal a lot with products liability. Uh, does anybody uh, practice uh, product liability? I was always fascinated by that area. I mean, that, that area is just you know, a burgeoning area of uh, law. Um, in this example, we have, um, uh, we can call her Martha. She's trying to get off of a bus, uh, but the driver closes the door on her foot and drags her for several blocks. I know that image is very uh, unnerving. Um, but she sues the bus company alleging negligence in failing to install a safety device that would prevent the buses from moving when the passenger door is open. It almost seems so logical that, you know, it seems stupid that the bus company didn't have that. But we're not, um, you know, viewing it through our personal lens. Uh, the bus company 
offers to show that no bus company employs such a device. Is that admissible? And uh, the answer to that could potentially be yes. Uh, what if we change the facts a little bit and Martha is able to show that 98% of the other bus companies do have an interlocking device that would prevent the bus from moving if the door is uh, open? Again, this seems so uh, logical that I can't believe that um, this is, you know, that an interlocking uh, bus device isn't something that is um, standard in the industry, but um, it, it doesn't look like it is. That answer would be yes. Is it conclusive on the liability issue? No. And that's because um, it's possible that 98% of the bus companies that do have it are acting out of an abundance of caution um, and that it's not customary in the industry for the buses to have that uh, feature. Now uh, we segue into discretionary policy-based relevance. Uh, there are three areas of importance here. We have liability insurance, subsequent reme remedial measures, and settlements. Um, a lot of this is going to be uh, second nature to you um, because these were the areas that were tested uh, very um, in intensely on bar exams. So liability insurance. Um, evidence, this is the general rule, is it evidence that a person was or was not insured at the time of an accident, not admissible to show that the person acted negligently or wrongfully or to show ability to pay. Um, <laughs> One can imagine uh, the verdicts and, uh, the and uh, how the jury would come back if they were to um, you know, be able to hear evidence of that. However, there are some exceptions to that, as we're going to see. And here they are. Um, exceptions to the rule about um, liability insurance. Ownership or control. The defendant denies ownership of a building where the plaintiff was injured. The plaintiff offers to show that the defendant carries liability insurance on the building. Is it admissible? Yes. And it's a double-edged sword. Um, <laughs> he opened or she opened up the door by denying ownership of the building and they should have known that there was going to be a boomerang effect. And as a plaintiff attorney, I'm salivating right now. I'm saying, oh yeah, you want to deny ownership of uh, the building? Well, I just scored twice because not only am I going to prove um, that you own that building, but I'm going to show that you carry liability insurance. And um, I'm going to probably, I mean, if, if, the, if the plaintiff's attorney is worth his salt, um, that's something that you want to blow up on the chart in closing argument um, as point number one. Um, a second exception, impeach the credibility of the witness by showing interest or bias. Uh, this is a little bit of an abstract example, but we have a, a witness who testifies favorably for the defense to facts of the accident. Uh, the plaintiff offers to show that witness is the claims manager of the defendant's liability insurance company, the same company that would have to pay if the defendant is found liable, admissible. Uh, yes, uh, the fact that the defendant carries liability insurance and that the witness is the claims manager of the defendant's liability insurance company is admissible to show that the witness is biased. Um, I mean, it's as, it's as clear as day. And for that reason, I mean, you would very rarely see an example like this, although stranger things have happened. Um, so this witness is employed by the insurance company, the real party in interest, and they are the party that would have to pay. So they're interested in giving favorable testimony. Statements made in connection with ownership of liability insurance are inadmissible. Uh, so the example here is the defendant goes over to the plaintiff and says, I ran the red light 
but don't worry, my insurance will pay for it. And so what we're doing is we're kind of, um, uh, we're severing these and we're analyzing each uh, sentence or each clause. So beginning with the first clause, I ran the red light. Um, it's an admission. Is it admissible? No. And the reason for that is if you go to Rule 411, um, which might be the same in the New York uh, Rules of Evidence, but these, are, these hypos are based on the Federal Rules of Evidence. Under 411, statements made in connection with ownership of liability insurance are inadmissible. Subsequent remedial measures, not admissible to show negligence, culpable conduct, a defect in a product, a defect in a product's design, and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The whole idea behind this is that we want to encourage the business um, to make repairs and to fix whatever defect um, existed without the fear of retaliation that that could later be used in court against them. Um, if the defense was put on notice or if the party that was um, at fault was put on notice that any subsequent remedial measures that they made, say to a tractor uh, that malfunctioned or to a product that they distributed could later be used against them in court, they would be dissuaded from making those subsequent remedial measures. So as you can see, there's a lot of policy that drives this. The good news about this is that sometimes this is the quickest and fastest way to jog your mind on how these rules operate by thinking logically and thinking about the policy behind it. So here we have evidence that the defendant put in new brake linings in his truck after an accident which was caused by faulty brakes. And the issue here is that would that be admissible or inadmissible to prove negligence? Um, as we just discussed before, it's a subsequent remedial repair. Putting the new brake lining in the truck after the brakes failed and it's inadmissible under 407. Here we have a product liability action against the tractor manufacturer. The plaintiff introduces evidence that the defendant corporation changed the design of its tractor three months after the plaintiff was injured. Would it be admissible? No. And again, that's under the general rule um, and that's because we favor uh, safety. There are some exceptions here. Um, it's admissible to show ownership and control. Well, we discussed that already, so this is just, um, I don't want uh, to beat a dead horse here, but uh, this example here um, just further demonstrates the ownership and control issue. Um, so it's an issue where uh, the plaintiff gets hit by a a tree branch from a rotting tree after uh, the branch breaks off and falls on him. And the issue here is um, that the defendant cut down the rotted tree after, uh, after the branch broke off. Um, and the um, issue is whether this evidence would be admissible to show ownership and control. And it would, um, it would if the defendant first claimed that the tree was on city property. So to the extent that the defense denies ownership of the tree or that the tree was on the curtilage of his property and that it belonged to him and that he was a responsible party for maintaining it, uh, to, the, to the extent that he denies that, then uh, the issue of ownership is brought into play. Um, so the fact that he was cutting down the rotted tree, um, you know, would be evidence admissible to show ownership. And that's this, uh, this would be a subsequent remedial measure, but it would be admissible to show ownership of control. Um, impeachment. Um, this is uh, based on the feasibility of precautionary measures. 
Um, this gets little attention, uh, but I think we have to really be on the lookout for this. Uh, it usually arises um, with statements that um, stemming from the defendant denying the feasibility of precautionary measures, followed by the defendant taking subsequent remedial measures to repair. So the image that I get in my mind is one where uh, the defense is saying, well, you know, there's nothing I could have done here to, you know, to make this product any safer. Um, and that's our first uh, statement. Uh, or there's no alternative design that would have made the product or premises safer. Um, and so here's the uh, hypo to kind of drive this home. We have a plaintiff who walks into a glass door that's uh, practically invisible. Um, and actually, this is based on a real, uh, real life case um, with a bank, um, a bank. Um, and I'm not, I'm not sure how many of you, I don't want to disclose uh, too much about it, but I mean, um, there are banks that are going like, um, that, are, that are so open in terms of like the window and the facade that they want all, you know, they want it to be a very bright atmosphere that, you know, it's actually um, not, uh, not too much of a surprise that somebody could walk into um, a, glass, uh, a glass door. Um, and here the defense contends that there was and is no way to avoid such an accident. So the defense has denied the feasibility of precautionary measures. The plaintiff offers evidence to show that after the accident, the defendant put little red stickers on the door to make them more visible. I added that and uh, I took some uh, literary license there, but I just want to illustrate how this works. Is that admissible? Yes. Um, so, you know, a potential line of cross-examination might be um, to the, you know, owner of the, um, uh, of the business. In the six months prior to July 1st, uh, which would have been the accident date of your client. How many other customers walked into the glass door? Um, I don't know, they might say uh, 12, although that's highly doubtful. How many customers walked into the door after the plaintiff ran into it? Um, none. And, you know, and then you could ask the, uh, what could potentially be the one question too many, but you already have enough ammunition here where you might be able to um, get this, uh, be able to argue this the extent that uh, red stickers comes out later on in the, in the course of the trial um, because this uh, question is, is going to invite a lot of pushback. But the question nonetheless is, is that because you took it upon yourself to put red stickers on the door to make them more visible? If that's the truth, um, it would be hard for the uh, bank manager or the owner of the establishment to um, distance himself from it. Settlements. Um, an offer to settle a claim which is disputed is inadmissible to prove liability for the claim or its amount. Um, the key uh, word here is disputed. And um, as, a, as a matter of fact, I remember how uh, heavily tested this was on my bar exam because uh, disputed is just, it, it's a word that just, you know, um, is full of meaning and that is easy to overlook. So there has to be an actual dispute before settlement negotiations must take place. That's the ironclad rule. And the rationale here is that we encourage out-of-court settlement through settlement talks. Uh, this includes not only the actual settlement, but also the offer to settle. It's a broad rule of exclusion that includes um, actual compromises, offers to compromise, offers to plead guilty in a criminal case. One can imagine um, all of the uh, problems uh, or how backed up the criminal justice system would become if evidence of negotiations 
to plea offers were admissible in a subsequent trial if the case didn't resolve. I mean, that would dampen any uh, negotiations whatsoever, um, you know, and uh, the criminal justice system would come to a grinding halt. And even now, with, you know, 97% of the cases pleading out, uh, we still have issues with our courts being overcrowded and delay in trials. Uh, withdrawal of, of pleas of guilty, uh, pleas of nolo contendere, all of those um, are covered by this. Admissions of facts, liability or damage made in the course of an offer to compromise a claim disputed as to liability, not admissible. Um, and here um, are the limitations that have to exist for the rule of exclusion to operate. There's got to be a claim. So in the most basic and primitive of, example, of examples, we have a plaintiff that's suing the defendant after a car accident. Defendant comes over to the plaintiff and says, I'll offer you $1,000 to settle this matter. Is it admissible? No, it's an offer to settle, and under the general rule, it is inadmissible. Um, and the key word here is suing. So suing infers that there is a claim, that there's a dispute. Uh, now let's contrast that with the hypothetical below. Here we have um, a new neighbor moves into the uh, same neighborhood as the Sullivans, the Sullivans have a mean dog. And uh, when Mr. Sullivan gets home from work, his wife tells him, I'm sorry, but uh, Coco bit our new neighbor. Uh, Mr. Sullivan uh, then approaches the plaintiff to be, um, which you know clues you in right away and says, um, are you the fellow who's bitten by Coco? Let's settle. In a later lawsuit, the plaintiff offers to testify to Mr. Sullivan's admission of dog ownership and offer to settle. Is it admissible? And the answer to that is yes, because there's not a claim yet. And therefore, and the tip-off, of course, was the plaintiff to be. This is happening on the heels of the uh, neighbor getting bitten by the dog. Um, there is yet to be a claim. There's yet to be a lawsuit. There's yet to be litigation. Uh, the claim has to be disputed as to either liability or amount. Uh, so in this hypothetical, we have a defendant that says to a plaintiff, I admit I owe you the full amount of 10000 on the promissory note, but if you want your money, you'll have to sue me for it. Kind of sounds like a veiled threat, if you ask me. But in any event, um, he continues to say um, to the plaintiff, on the other hand, if you want to settle now, I'll pay you five grand for a full release. Can the plaintiff show that the defendant admitted liability on the note? Yes, um, because the defendant did not dispute the liability or the amount. I realize this is tricky and um, a little bit, uh, a little clever, but um, if you look at the first sentence here, he says that I admit that I owe you the full amount, and that's the key thing. So all this happening in the second phrase, or the second sentence, is that he's saying, look, I want to cut my losses. You know, I'm willing to pay you 5000 for a full release now. It'll save you trouble. It'll save me trouble. Um, and uh, you know we can go about our daily lives and just put this behind us. And again, um, that would be, can the plaintiff show that the defendant admitted liability on the note? Yes, uh, because the defendant did not dispute either the liability or the amount of the promissory note. Um, in fact, as we just discussed, he admitted that he owed the full amount. Compare, um, the defendant says, let's settle. I'll admit I was negligent. Let's agree on the amount of damage. Now, is that admissible? And the answer to that is no, because the admission of negligence was made 
as part of a settlement discussion of the disputed damage issue. So there's no severance under 408 for offers to settle. Statements made in connection with offers to settle. Um, in a negligence action following a car accident, defendant walks over to the plaintiff and says, I'm sorry, it's my fault. There's the admission. I'm willing to settle this matter with you. Can that admission be offered into evidence? Can it be bifurcated from that whole phrase? And uh, again, the uh, answer to that is no. There's no severance under 408 for offers to settle. Uh, there are some exceptions here. Uh, to prove bias or prejudice of a witness, uh, this example is a little bit, um, a little bit uh, crazy, so we're going to just skip over it. Um, so the exceptions are to prove bias or prejudice of a witness, to um, contradict a contention of undue delay by one of the parties, or to prove that a party attempted to obstruct a criminal investigation. Uh, we have payment of medical and similar expenses. Um, the offer to pay medical expenses is not admissible, even though it's not a settlement offer. Uh, but if an admission of fact, and this, is, this distinguishes it from the um, examples that we just discussed, if there's an admission of a, a fact that it accompanies this naked offer to pay hospital or medical expenses, the admission may be admitted. So you can see we're, we're, we're splitting the atom here. And you know, I realize that um, you know, in theory, these make great bar exam questions. Um, and in practicality, um, you know, it's not always seen. But it does nonetheless come up. And it's important that we know that we can issue spot it and know that it's an issue in our case so that we can you know, delve into uh, researching it and uh, supporting it with the case law that we need. The effect of this is that the admission is severed and admitted into evidence, but the offer to pay, the ex medical expenses is, is excluded. So um, here we have a defendant who says, it's all my fault. Let me pay your hospital bill. Admissible? Yes. Um, it was all my fault. That part is bifurcated. And the admission that it was all my fault is admissible because it's being made as part of the naked offer to pay medical bill, and it's not a settlement offer. Uh, offers to plead guilty, we just talked about that. Um, again, these offers to plead guilty are inadmissible against the individual who made the plea. And the public policy is, is to encourage um, defendants in the criminal justice system to uh, make pleas. Uh, exceptions, prosecution for perjury, and for purposes of impeachment. Okay, we're going to move into character evidence right now. Um, there are, the way I see it, and this is kind of the way that I process character evidence, and as I said, I mean, my, my way is just the way it has come to me and uh, the way that I, um, I've been able to make it my own. Everybody's going to have their own way of processing and of um, you know, going through their checklist of things for character evidence. And it's more or less a feeling out process. When you get into court and you're litigating, you know, you'll begin to you know, fall. It'll begin to uh, come to you as second nature, how you, you know, how you issue spot things and how things come to you. And the good thing, and the thing that I would encourage is for you to be self-aware of what things um, spark uh, these issues in your mind so that you can kind of um, uh, circumvent you know, the lengthy process of, you know, of it being trial and error and actually 
pinpoint what it is that triggered that issue for you. And uh, being able to identify it is very, very important. And it'll help keep you on your feet and on your toes when you're in um, you know, a protracted uh, you know, trial. So the four preliminary questions when it comes to character evidence. Determine the purpose for which the evidence is being offered. I can't tell you that has been beaten into my head by evidence professors, by, um, uh, by bar review professors, by um, my deputy as, when I was a public defender. Determine the purpose for which the evidence is being offered. But I was always so stubborn and so headstrong that I would always you know, skip over that one, thinking that it was like, kind of like relevancy, like you know, I can, you know, it's, not, it's not that important, but it is. You always have to ask yourself the purpose for which the evidence is being offered because a lot of times you can't progress to the next step in your analysis without knowing the purpose. And a lot of times I stood up on my feet and I'm arguing to the judge and I don't even, um, and, I, and I've already overlooked the issue of the purpose. And so a good judge um, who's been on the bench for a while, um, you know, will basically focus you or bring you right back and ask you, well, you know, what is your problem with this, um, you know, with this? And, you know, you always fall back on the purpose. And as, you know, a defense attorney or a plaintiff attorney, you know, you always want to identify the purpose in as short a phrase as you possibly can so that um, you, can, uh, you can expose it for what it is. Because a lot, of, a lot of times if you're a criminal defense attorney, it's hurting you, that purpose. And so it's important to identify it with precision. Second, we have a method of proving character. Third, what type of case are we dealing with, civil or criminal? And fourth, what trait of character is involved? Again, this list is actually designed to help ease um, the, way we, uh, the way we analyze character evidence. It's not meant to complicate it. Uh, when we miss one or two of these steps, it, uh, we could be standing up on our feet arguing uh, when, there's no, when, when there's no argument. So it's important that we kind of uh, fall into you know, um, recognizing that there are steps and that we have to go through them as we are processing this evidence. What's the purpose or offer of character evidence? Uh, we have a few uh, scenarios here where character is directly an issue, where we have a person's character as a material element in the case. We have character as circumstantial evidence of a person's conduct at the time of the litigated event. Um, and then we have the third type where character is used to impeach the credibility of a witness. Um, and it's usually in the form of bad character for truthfulness to impeach the credibility of a witness who testifies at trial. Oftentimes, number three gets confused with uh, cross-examination and issues that come up there. So I'm going to try to um, uh, give you a simple way of distinguishing between the two. Uh, so what method or technique to prove character? The good news here is that there are three possibilities. Uh, these will immediately come to mind. Specific acts of conduct, opinion, reputation in the community. Uh, reputation or opinion is a red flag that tells you you're in the theater of character evidence. What type of case? We have two options, civil or criminal. What trait of character? It has to be the specific trait which is substantively an issue in the case. And I'm going to give you some hypotheticals that will uh, further explain that. So let's begin with civil cases. The rule here is that character evidence, not admissible, when offered as circumstantial evidence to infer conduct at the time of the litigated event. We already had a hypothetical or two about that earlier. 
Um, here we have a quick example. Plaintiff sues defendant for personal injury damages alleging negligence arising out of a car accident. The plaintiff offers a witness to testify that defendant has a reputation in the community for recklessness. Okay, so that's a neon sign going off right uh, now in your mind. Reputation, community, recklessness. Something's wrong here, something's wrong. Admissible, simple answer, no. And what is, and, and remember how we were just talking about what is the purpose for which the evidence is being offered? This is why I'm hearkening back to that and kind of beating it uh, to death. But what is the plaintiff trying to suggest here? Uh, he's trying to suggest that if the defendant has been reckless and careless in the past, which is the clear inference from this testimony that defendant has a reputation in the community for recklessness, then it's more than likely that the defendant was careless and reckless at this occasion, which was a car accident. Uh, so this is the prohibited purpose, and this is what, what the character evidence rule is exactly aimed at stopping. And so what's good for the goose is good for the gander. Evidence that the defendant has a reputation as a careful person would be inadmissible character evidence in a negligence action. Or if the defendant was a driver um, that caused the accident, that he had a reputation as a careful driver, inadmissible. In a negligence action, we have a defendant who's seeking to testify that he's been driving for 40 years without ever being previously involved in an accident. Admissible? No. Um, again, this is the prohibited purpose that the character evidence rule is designed to stop. The defense is trying to suggest that since he's always been careful before, the jury should infer that he was careful this time. Um, a lot of times, uh, clients just can't wrap their head around it, especially if they have as clean a record as this. I mean, this is uh, pretty impressive, a 40-year track record without ever previously being involved um, in an accident. And um, it's something that they feel, you know, wants to, they want to get out right away, that they're careful, and um, they're always, um, you know, they're always driving at, uh, what is it, 10 and 2, <laughs> but uh, they can't bring it in. A breach of warranty action. In a breach of warranty action, evidence that the seller was an honest man is an example of character evidence, which is inadmissible. Now, the exception. And this is where everybody gets uh, confused, um, at least as far, insofar as civil cases go. Character evidence is admissible in a civil case when the character of a person is an essential element of a claim, defense, or cause of action. Um, and again, the character is directly an issue. And the tip here is where knowledge of the character of another is an issue. Knowledge of the character of, an, of another is an issue. Negligent entrustment, if that comes to mind and that triggers something in your mind, uh, you're right on the money. You've, um, you're, you're right on the money for what we're talking about. Uh, don't be quick to assume the character is an issue. We have three types of cases. I love these cases. Um, defamation, where truth is a defense. Negligent entrustment, wrongful death. So here is the example from, um, for def defamation. Uh, you have um, Grutz calling Yuckle a crook. Um, of course, a plaintiff, uh, that Yuckle is a plaintiff, he then sues the defendant Grutz for defamation, seeking a million dollars for damages to his reputation. Defendant uh, turns around and seeks to show the plaintiff has on three prior occasions stolen money from his employer. 
Now, you might think that, wow, that is really, that's, that, that, that is no place for coming into evidence. I mean, that is just so prejudicial. And you would want to argue that. Um, but as you're going to soon see, uh, we have an obstacle. Defendant also seeks to show that even before the alleged defamation, plaintiff had a reputation for being dishonest. Is this admissible? Yes. Since the defendant's defense is truth, plaintiff's reputation before the defamatory words were spoken is critical. Um, so that would come in. I would still strongly um, encourage you to argue that the probe, that, that, that it's uh, so shocking that it's going to taint the jury um, to bring in uh, collateral evidence like this. So uh, let's, don't, let's not get confused here. Committing three larcenies is a specific act. It is a specific act. And this is a civil case where character is an issue. Um, but specific acts do come in. The testimony is admissible under 405B. Um, and this is where I talked to you before about not confusing character evidence when it's used um, you know, to attack the credibility of a witness with impeachment of witnesses. So let's not confuse this example with impeachment of witnesses. 405 deals with character evidence of parties, not impeachment of witnesses. Negligent entrustment. Uh, this is a classic case where plaintiff is injured when um, uh, we'll call her uh, Wanda collided with him while Wanda was driving the defendant's car. Uh, plaintiff is suing the defendant, um, who is the person who loaned uh, Wanda her car uh, for negligent entrustment. So the cause of action is negligent entrustment. Um, plaintiff now is attempting to introduce evidence that the defendant, uh, the person who owned the car and lent it to Wanda, knew that Wanda had three previous driving accidents that year. Is that admissible testimony? Yes. Um, it's a civil case, negligent entrustment. Second, we're dealing with a specific act, uh, three previous accidents. And third, we have character is, um, as being an issue. And um, in a negligent entrustment case, the character of the entrustor is an issue. Um, and so the defendant's character is, as the entrustor is an issue to prove that she negligently known, loaned, rather, Wanda the car. Um, and so the um, rule here, as we just um, demonstrated it, is that if character is directly in issue in a civil case and is admissible, it can be proven by any one of the specific techniques. And we have three of them, as we just discussed, specific acts, opinion, and reputation. Uh, criminal cases. This is um, this is my favorite um, because I just I live in this world. Um, the basic rules uh, to establish and lay down are um, these three or four. Um, the first basic rule is bad character, whether in the form of specific acts of prior misconduct, prior crimes or convictions, bad opinion or bad reputation, is not admissible by the state if the sole purpose is to show criminal disposition in order to infer guilt from disposition. Unless and, an, and until, those are the key words, defendant opens the door. And by golly, it is so hard sometimes to stop them from doing that. That's why most defense attorneys um, get very, very anxious when a client insists upon testifying uh, because they don't understand the nuance and how easy they can traipse into this unchartered territory 
And um, ever, even ever so slightly opening up that door makes them vulnerable to impeachment, especially uh, impeachment that can be outright or downright damaging if they have a prior record, uh, which is uh, sadly uh, the case when, um, uh, when you're doing uh, indigent work and uh, in the public defender's office. But here, um, the basic rule says, yes, yes, the defendant is permitted to offer evidence of good character for the pertinent trait in the form of reputation and opinion to show disposition in order to infer innocence. Then the prosecution can respond by showing the bad character of the accused. So basically, it's a criminal case. We're setting the context here. And the defendant would love, absolutely love, to introduce evidence of his or her good character for the purpose of showing that he's not the type of person that would have committed the crime. The, defense, the defendants always want to do that. I mean, there's, they, they, they always want to tell their story, get on the stand and say, ne I've, I've never been known, I, I've never in my life done anything like this. I'm uh, clean as a whistle. Now, here's an example, and this is going to demonstrate the rule. Um, and the caption here is the, an example of when the defense has come perilously close but has not opened the door. This is going to demonstrate a very nuanced and parcel, a parcel rule that exists in the federal rules of evidence and isn't so common in the state rules of evidence, actually. It's a homicide case. The defendant offers testimony through a witness. So understand, it's not the defendant who's taken the stand and is testifying. It's a witness uh, that he has called. The witness gets on the stand and testifies that he's been the defendant's neighbor for 14 years, and he's an honest man. Well, one would think right away that um, we have opened up the door by offering evidence of good character. However, if we read this rule very carefully, it says evidence of good character for the pertinent trait. And those words carry such, such significant meaning because honest man is not a proper way to open up the door because it does not go towards proving innocence um, for someone who's charged with homicide. And if you think about it from a logical perspective, it makes sense. Homicide is a crime that is violent and that you know, is, um, is, is just you know, extremely violent and extremely, um, uh, you know, extremely physical. Honesty would not go towards disproving um, murder. It would not go towards innocence for a client who's charged with murder. What would? Peacefulness would go towards the trait of, um, or would go towards supporting innocence for a case of murder. Honesty would be, you could be used to open up the door for a client who's charged with embezzlement, theft, anything involving deceit. Um, and, that, and that's why in this case, this witness uh, probably didn't even know, uh, probably didn't even know better, uh, but he did not open up the door by stating that it, uh, he's known the defendant for 14 years and he's an honest man. That's not the right way to open up the door. The trait of honesty does not bear on innocence to a charge of murder. And so the defense attorney uh, breathes a sigh of relief and uh, lives to uh, litigate another day. Compare. This time the witness says, 
I've been the defendant's neighbor for 14 years, and he's a kind and gentle person. So just like we talked about before, um, the trait of peacefulness bears on innocence to a charge of murder. So does kind, gentle, anything physical. Um, gentle person is a trait that would bear on innocence to a charge of murder, and that evidence would be admissible. So now the defendant has opened up the door to uh, the prosecutor coming back. And this becomes a very dangerous, dangerous, dangerous thing if the defendant has skeletons in his closet. So um, to illustrate what's going on here, you want to focus on the trait being offered. That trait has to go to proving innocence for that particular charge. Uh, what type of evidence is rebuttal by the prosecution limited to? Uh, that's the last part of our rule. The prosecution may so rebut. Rebuttal by the prosecution is limited to reputation and opinion evidence only. The idea here is that we don't want to have a trial within a trial, and it's going to just turn the whole thing into a circus. But nonetheless, the prosecution has uh, the ability to offer another neighbor's testimony that she's known defendant for 14 years, and he has a reputation for a violent temper. So now we've had the witness take the stand and say uh, that the defendant is a peaceful person. The prosecution now has come back with a rebuttal evidence who has uh, said that she's known the defendant for all these years and he has a reputation for a violent temper. Reputation evidence for a violent temper is a proper and admissible form of rebuttal by the prosecution. Now, this is just playing with a few different variations of the same thing. Uh, remember we talked about the first hypothetical where the witness says that the defendant's an honest man and the defendant's charged with homicide. That trait of honesty doesn't go towards uh, innocence in a charge of murder. However, in this case, we have a defendant charged with robbery, uh, which is, you know, which there is a uh, element of deceit um, involved. And so a defendant neighbors uh, comes to court and is the witness for the defense. He testifies that he's known the defendant for all these years. He's an honest man. Is this admissible? Yes, because in a robbery case, a trait of honesty goes towards proving innocence. Now, the prosecution gets up, and we're going to defy some of the laws of logic here, so stick with me here. I don't want to confuse you, but I just want to show you the practical application of this. Prosecution gets up, asks the defense witness on cross, the defense witness, did you know that the defendant committed three burglaries in the last year? You're thinking right away, specific acts, neon sign going off in my mind, oh crap, I think we have a problem because now um, we have these, his three prior burglaries have come into evidence. The jury's going to hate my client. This is the improper form. I need a limiting instruction. All this is going to be going through your mind. There'll be, you know, basically, you know, you, you'll be ready to short circuit. Um, when all, after um, the jury's been excused and this has been all flushed out, um, this is basically how this issue gets analyzed. It's a specific act, no question to it. The fact that, um, that the defendant committed three burglaries, where it's not reputation or opinion. Is it a proper form of rebuttal, though? Yes, yes, it is. And I'll tell you, I cringe every time I see this, but this is the court's reasoning, and I've been smacked around so much by this 
uh, reasoning that um, you know it's uh, it makes me want to at sometimes literally crawl underneath the council table. But uh, the question is being asked again not to attack the defendant's character, but it's being asked to challenge the credibility of the witness. Um, that logic and that reasoning uh, is pervasive on the court, and so. You have to distinguish between character purposes and credibility purposes. Remember we talked about the, in the beginning, what is the purpose for which the evidence is being offered? Well, in this case, we're not asking the witness this question, at least this is the, what the prosecutor is going to argue, to attack the defendant's character, um, even though this, we love that this just came in, uh, but it's being asked to challenge the credibility of the witness himself. And it's a beautiful question because if you think about it, it's a double-edged sword that traps the witness. It doesn't matter how the witness answers that question, yes or no, you as a prosecutor have just captured them like um, you know, in a web. Because if the witness says, I didn't know about the three burglaries, uh, I mean, call me ignorant, but I didn't know about the, about the burglaries, how well then does he really know the defendant to get on the stand and say that he was an honest man? And the prosecutor doesn't even have to ask that question. He can argue it at in summation if he or she wants to. So that's the beauty of this question. The second part of it is that if the witness says, well, I did know about the three burglaries, then how credible of a witness can he be if he says that he knew that the defendant had committed three burglaries and he's up there testifying under oath that the defendant is an honest man? And that's the argument. And I, I get so heated over it because the prosecution relishes it and loves, loves to beat it in summation. And they don't have to even do much. They don't have to ask the one question too many. Oftentimes, yes or no is enough. And then they have enough ammunition to weave this into their closing argument and essentially just blow that witness right out of the water. Because that witness, um, no matter if, if he said yes, that he knew about the three burglaries, how can you possibly find him credible? Because how well could he have really known the defendant um, if he didn't know about those burglaries? But on the other hand, if he knew about them and still said that the uh, guy was credible, um, or still said that the guy was honest, then how credible is he? So I'm going to take you through some examples. Um, we have a fictitious character, Tony Soprano. Um, Tony is uh, just, he's just a little rascal here. He's getting into a lot of trouble. He's arrested and he's on trial for assaulting an elderly woman. In court, he looks like a clean, upstanding, middle-aged man. The prosecutor, however, has his rap sheet and it belies um, all of that. It shows that he's been arrested six prior times for robbery and he has three prior convictions for assault, two prior convictions for perjury. What I want you to uh, take careful note of here is that the trial is for assault. Uh, so don't get distracted by some of these other superfluous things, but you still have to keep them in the back of your mind. He's got a rap sheet, six prior arrests, three prior uh, for robbery, three prior convictions for assault, and two prior convictions for perjury. He's on trial for assaulting, um, and assaulting of an elderly woman. As part of his case in chief, can the prosecutor introduce Tony's criminal history? The answer to that is no. Question two. Can the prosecutor introduce Tony's criminal history or any part of it if Tony doesn't try to show his good character but only takes a stand and denies his involvement in the crime? 
Um, so the question, the, the answer here would be, uh, or the, the, the purposes for which it's being offered is very important here. To show Tony's disposition to be violent? Absolutely not. To impeach his credibility, to show his lack of truthfulness? Yes. Um, so the part of Tony's criminal background that deals with truthfulness would be admissible uh, to impeach his credibility as a witness. And that, uh, that part of his background that deals with truthfulness is the perjury conviction. Can Tony take the initiative to show his good character? Yes. Uh, remember that the trait for which he can show his good character has to bear on innocence for the charge, the criminal charge that he has. He's being charged with assault. So he's got to introduce evidence of um, reputation for peacefulness or um, some type of, um, you know, something that would tamp down um, aggression. It can't be um, that I'm honest. It has to be that uh, he has to introduce evidence of his reputation for peacefulness because he's charged with assault. Uh, our next question is what method or technique is available for Tony to demonstrate his good character? Uh, again, we have three forms, specific acts, good conduct, opinion, reputation. Well, Tony wants to present himself as a peaceful person to show that he acted consistent with this trait on the time um, in issue. Only evidence in the form of reputation or opinion is admissible. Um, specific acts of good conduct are, are inadmissible, rather, when the defendant is offering circumstantial evidence of good character. Uh, so now we're going to be bringing in a defense witness. Uh, def uh, Tony's calling Paulie. I'm not sure how good of an idea that is, but he's a witness who testifies that Tony has a good reputation for peacefulness and that in Paulie's opinion, Tony's peaceful. Um, and this is basically what he says. Paulie takes a stand, is sworn in. I know Tony's reputation for peacefulness in the community and Tony's a pussycat. Well, that is evidence that comes in. Uh, he's opened up the door, though. How can the prosecutor respond? After the accused offers the evidence of good character, the prosecutor can respond by cross-examining the accused good character witness, in this case it's Paulie, by asking him about any specific acts which would affect his opinion. So the prosecutor can attack Paulie's credibility um, the credibility of the character witness himself by introducing evidence of Paulie's prior convictions, if he had any, for perjury or bad reputation for truthfulness. Anything that bears on, tr on uh, truthfulness is fair game for the prosecutor to um, attack Paulie on, on cross. Can the prosecutor ask Paulie on cross, have you heard or do you know that Tony was arrested six times for robbery? Um, and this harkens back to what we talked about before. Yes. And that, even though it's a specific act, the reasoning behind it is that the question is being asked not to attack Tony's character, even though the prosecutor loves the collateral benefit that it gets. In fact, a lot of times the prosecutor is uh, bootstrapping the um, more shocking um, evidence of Tony's prior record in through the more benign um, you know, rationale that it's being used to attack the witness's character, in this case, Paulie. So the reasoning is that the question is being asked not to attack Tony's character, but instead it's being asked to challenge Paulie's credibility. Meanwhile, the prosecutor's laughing all the way to the bank because they scored um, twofold on you. And that's uh, partly, in my opinion, your fault if you did not know or you were not aware that this boomerang was going to come back and, um, and get you. 
the double-edged sword is that if Paulie answers, no, I didn't know that Tony was arrested six times for robbery, then, of course, uh, the prosecutor gets to challenge him on how well he really knows Tony's reputation in the community. Ladies and gentlemen, um, you know, how could Paulie, um, how could Paulie's testimony be uh, weighed, um, you know, with any, any type of significance when he didn't even know that the man that he was testifying for was arrested six times? Um, and plus, can you even believe that? Can you even believe that Paulie didn't know that uh, Tony wasn't arrested six times? But you run with that. And then on the other hand, if Paulie testified that Tony had a reputation for uh, peacefulness despite knowing that Tony had been arrested six times, he's not credible. I mean, he's just lost whatever, whatever scintilla of credibility he had is, has just got up and gone. Suppose that Paulie says, uh, no, I don't believe that Tony was arrested six times. Can the prosecutor call a witness to testify that Tony was in fact arrested six times? No. The courts don't want a trial within a trial, and so they're going to stop what could become a, um, you know, a circus right then and there by, by stopping the prosecutor from bringing in another witness to say, that, uh, to corroborate um, that Tony was in fact arrested six times. Um, the way of handling this is difficult, though, because you know, um, a crafty defense attorney could you know, try to exploit that um, you know, by uh, suggesting to the jury that uh, they should pay no attention to the prior arrest because they haven't been confirmed. But uh, I would be hard-pressed to think that a judge would let a defense attorney get away with that in summation. Uh, the prosecutor is bound by the specific answer of the witness. Can the prosecutor call a witness to testify that Tony had a bad reputation for violence and that in the witness's opinion, Tony is violent? Of course, of course, because the accused offered evidence of his good character prosecution can respond by calling prosecution witnesses to testify to bad opinions or bad reputation. Uh, victim character, I'm going to, we're going to end here. I just want to um, go over this real fast because this is an area that comes up quickly. Uh, the accused can take the initiative in a homicide or assault case as part of a claim of self-defense to show the character of the victim um, as circumstantial evidence to infer that on the occasion in question, the alleged victim was the first aggressor. Uh, so if you have a client who's making a claim of self-defense, um, to boil this down and distill it in you know, the easiest way, you can smear. You can smear the victim. Uh, there are some rules here, though, that you have to be aware of. Uh, the permissible method of showing character evidence is through reputation or opinion evidence. The prosecution can shoot back, though, uh, so you might be able to shoot the cannon off. Okay, uh, you might be able to shoot, make the uh, first shot off the bow of the ship, but the prosecutor can always come back at you by responding, and that response can be in the form of showing good reputation or opinion concerning the victim, or by showing the bad reputation or bad opinion regarding the, the accused himself. Wow. Okay, we've got another hypo involving Tony. Um, he shot and killed Harry during a barroom brawl. Uh, Tony's charged with murder, but he responds with a plea of self-defense. Tony claims that Harry attacked him with a broken beer bottle and that he, Tony, was in fear for his life and had no other choice but to shoot Harry. The first issue is can Tony call a witness to testify that Harry, the victim, had a bad reputation for violence and that in uh, the witness's opinion, Harry was a violent person? Yes. Um, if Tony 
does attack Harry's character, can the prosecutor respond by calling a rebuttal witness to testify that Harry had a good reputation for peacefulness? Yes. And um, the form of that would be reputation or opinion. The prosecutor can ask that witness um, you know, to describe uh, Harry, and the witness can say, well, Harry uh, was a peaceful person. And that rebuts the claim that Tony's witness um, said before that muddied, um, Harry, that muddied uh, the victim up. If Tony does attack Harry's character, can the prosecutor now call a witness to testify that Tony has a bad reputation for violence and that, in the opinion of the witness, Tony's a violent person? So um, think about what we just talked about before. We talked about the situation where the prosecutor calls a witness to um, undermine what Tony's witness said about how the victim uh, was, was an aggressor and was, um, you know, had a bad temper. And uh, the prosecution responded by saying that the victim is peaceful. Now, uh, the prosecutor wants to uh, rebut with a witness who comes in and says, Tony is a violent person. Is that, um, is that testimony admissible? And the answer is yes. Uh, Tony calls a witness now to testify that the witness saw Harry use a broken beer bottle to stab and almost kill three bar patrons in fights Harry started last year. Uh, boy, that is, uh, that's, that's something, of course, that uh, Tony would love uh, the jury to hear. But is it admissible? Sadly, no, um, if you're the defense. That evidence is specific acts, and only reputation and opinion evidence are permissible methods of showing character. What if the witness testifies that the witness told? Uh, now we're dealing with some subtleties here. What if the witness testifies that he told Tony about Harry's other acts of brutality, how he stabbed those other, uh, those other bar patrons with uh, the broken beer bottle a few weeks before Tony shot and killed Harry? Is it admissible? Yes. Um, and again, what is the purpose for which it's being offered, or what is its relevancy? In this case, it's being used to show Harry's, uh, uh, isn't being used rather, to show Harry's violent disposition in order to show that Harry uh, was the aggressor? No, uh, because again, specific acts is uh, not permissible. It's um, prohibited character evidence. But is it admissible to show uh, Tony's state of mind? His reasonable fear of being injured during the fight with Harry? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's being used to show that Tony knew. Um, through this witness that this victim was violent. And that goes to one of the elements of, um, of, of self-defense. And to that extent, it's admissible for that purpose. That's why, again, I, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, but you always want to know the purpose for which you're introducing it. If I were to stand in front of a judge and make the lame argument that, you know, conceding that it's a specific bad act, but that it's uh, highly relevant, and I can't pinpoint the reason for it, the prosecutor's going to keep uh, pushing back, pushing back, pushing back, and there's a good chance that I might not get that evidence out. Um, and believe it or not, yes, that does happen. Um, the, uh, you know, the overlooking of things by defense counsel can sometimes uh, turn into uh, very bad, have dire results for clients, and sometimes you know, while the appellate division may uh, realize that there was an error made, they could find it was harmless error. 
And even in a case like this where self-defense is as huge um, an issue, and this is the difference between whether you know, the defendant uh, walks away you know, from this or serves potentially 10 to 15 years in prison, uh, the appellate division may still nonetheless find that there was error, but that there was harmless error. And so you've got, you've got to be on this like, um, you know, like, like white on rice. I mean, I don't know what else to say except, you know, if, if it doesn't, if something hits you and you feel like, you know, this has to be admissible, I've done my research, it's got to be admissible, but I can't pinpoint the reason. You get up and you argue it strenuously and you'll find it. A lot of times, you know, when you jump on your feet, you may not have the reason in your mind. You might not have the rule of evidence or the rule of procedure at your fingertips, but the more you go, the more the adrenaline rush you get, the, um, the, the more it'll come. And um, the main thing is that you preserve the issue so that it's a viable issue that can be appealed if you lose. And um, unfortunately, losing is you know, sometimes uh, more frequent than not in um, the criminal defense business. So it is admissible, and it's admissible to show Tony's state of mind uh, during the fight with Harry. Remember, Tony's pleading self-defense. I was correct in fearing for my life based on what I knew. Just boil it down right to that and tell the judge that. You don't have to sugarcoat it in any other way. Just distill it into its core, uh, into, the, into, into its most direct and core elements, and you get it out, and um, it, uh, any judge is going to realize this, that it's admissible, and it's admissible to show the state of mind. All right, we're going to stop here. Um, if you have any questions, Feel free to give me, um, you can shoot me an email. Um, you know, my, my website has a lot of this information on it. Um, and, um, you know, it was a pleasure presenting, so I thank you for your attention and I uh, wish you the best. <laughs>